Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. Emily, how was your week? Since we last spoke, it's actually a little bit over a week, and I'm aware that we're a bit slow putting this episode out, and that's because I actually got a job so I was on location for seven days and what I found is whilst I'm working on that kind of job I don't have the capacity for anything outside of work really anymore so whereas previously I was perfectly capable to manage the household and would have been able to do these sort of things um, I could only focus on the job so after that in the past week I was quite worried that I would head for a major crash because it was a really really intense period of work and I haven't had a major crash. I think that's a very positive thing. I don't think I have ever been so tired in my whole entire life, like not even any period of long COVID. And I've had a couple of migraines, but I haven't had any kind of full body, you know, that adrenaline thing that I talk about, or I've I've had poor sleep. It has triggered a kind of insomnia, but not in the way that I was fearing. So I think that is... A positive thing and like you've said to me I couldn't have done this a year ago yeah no I know what you would have done in those seven days that you worked and it would have been 18 hour days flat out standing up outside yeah having your head on high alert all the time because you're managing different teams so I'm really proud of you like you've really turned the corner I think so that week of work just shows you Maybe there might be an end in sight. And I think it's really, really hard to not always compare it to what you were able to do pre-COVID. It's very hard to stop yourself from that comparison. If I make the comparison with one year ago, I've made big gains. And so hopefully, slowly, slowly, we can all just build back towards a level of normal life. Yeah, I'm a little different in my view because I don't think I'll get back to how I was pre-COVID, but I know that I'll improve to the point where I can function better. But I think we just have to know our limitations now. Yeah, and one of the things with that is I knew that I was doing this period of work. After that period of work, I built in days where I literally sat in bed and I built those in before I thought, oh, I'm really tired, I need to go to bed. So I kind of spent the first three days really, really trying to just sit still. And I think it's that. We have to work out how we manage our, our lives in a new way. Yeah. Like you said, we could have done it all before. Kids, job, extra job. Friends. Friends, dinners. But now it's just like you've got to focus on one thing. Yeah. And how was your week, my love? Not too bad. I've had a good two weeks of feeling okay. Great. But I'm with my period, which have been affected with long COVID, as so many women's. I do definitely feel much worse around this time of the month. I'm feeling extra tired and a bit tacky. Yeah. But apart from that, I'm quite blessed. My husband came back after being away for a while. I was actually managed to feel normal and do things and cook dinners. And but and then I feel a bit of a fraud because he's here when I'm well. So he doesn't see when I'm, you know, when I'm having my bad weeks. I think that he's seen enough of you feeling awful. And I think you have to just be really happy that you've managed to have a couple of good weeks whilst he's home. Yeah. But it's, it's that funny thing where it's the way that you interact with people has changed. It, it's a challenge mentally. Like we have 
we have changed as people. And so we have to readjust. I think that's part of the problem with all of these invisible illnesses, that um, we have to not only deal with the illness itself, but the expectations of those around us. Yeah. And our own expectations, which I think is one of the biggest challenges. Um, One of the things that I wanted to mention this week is that I, as part of my long COVID clinic, got referred to do a mindfulness course. Now, I know that there is a lot of criticism of psychologizing this disease and people have been very, very upset when they have been offered things like breathing workshops and mindfulness courses from their long COVID clinic. And you and I, we don't believe this is a psychological disease. We don't believe that this is in people's heads. However, I don't think that we should completely dismiss the value of things like mindfulness. I've only done one class so far, but I was really incredibly impressed with the lead, with the support staff and with the group. And one thing that you and I talk about a lot is the fact that we've got each other through this past year, year and a half. We've had each other to talk to and to feel some kind of, what's the word? Kinship, understanding. Exactly. And I think there are a lot of people out there who don't have that. And they're just themselves at Long COVID Island in what we were just talking about, a world where you're not really the same as you used to be. And so I don't think that you can underestimate just the value of having some kind of group like that, sharing experiences. I would wholeheartedly recommend if anyone is offered that kind of support, I would suggest exploring it. Great. Well, my Long COVID clinic doesn't have that. (laughs) And I also am aware that people, people's long COVID clinics don't have that. People are still not getting their long COVID clinic referrals. And I am not saying by any means that my long COVID clinic referral was perfect. No, but that's good to hear. But I just wanted to pick one positive thing yeah. and say that the NHS in Northwest London is doing an excellent mindfulness course. So this week's guest is a bit of a guests, I should say, are a little bit of a celebrity amongst the Twitter sphere of long COVIDness. <laughs> we managed to get hold of the company and the inventor of Tolovid, and they're also doing trials on a separate pharmacological drug called Tolovir, which is a protease inhibitor, which basically stops... Viral replication. Yeah, the viral replication in your body. So it's an antiviral. Natural antiviral. So it's effectively has a very similar action to Paxlovid. The Tolovid on which the long COVID community is quite heavily focused, I, I would say, and there are a lot of people who are wanting to try it or wanting to try the base material, which is Gromwell root. We always come at these interviews with a healthy dose of enthusiasm and scepticism. So we spoke to Gerald Commission from Todos Medical, who are the company bringing it to market, and Dorit Arad, who is a drug developer and founder of NLC Pharma. So first, here's our conversation with Gerald Commission. As the CEO of Todos Medical, what are you comfortable claiming about this drug? Well, it's not a drug. I'm very comfortable indicating that it's, you know, safe. So we've not had any safety concerns. I'm comfortable claiming that people are seeing benefit using it within the context of trying to reduce the amount of three-cell protease they have. And those are really the two things. When we touch on something that we've not really discussed 
in too much detail before. We like to just set it up for, for our listeners. Can you just tell us what is protease? Sure. The 3CL protease, also known as the main protease, also can be found in the literature as NSP5, NSP5. Its function is twofold, really. One, it's basically the scissors that cuts all the virions that are stuck together. It cuts them off one by one so that each virion, each viral particle can then go out and infect other cells. As long as they're strung together, they can't go and infect other cells. They're stuck inside the cell. So the protease is actually what cuts them one by one and cleaves them. They call it cleaving. Cleaving them at different sites so that they can go out and infect other cells. So that's that's the first thing that the protease does. And the protease is basically it's a set of amino acids that's created by the virus to perform this function. The other thing the protease does which has not gotten a lot of attention because everyone's been focused on viral replication, but is critically, critically important, is the the protease in COVID and other diseases, each virion creates 70 proteases. These are just protease-producing factories. And when the protease goes out, because the protease can go out right away, it doesn't need to be cleaved because it does the cleaving. When the protease goes out, it turns off or it cleaves something called NEMO, which is a cell surface receptor for an intracellular mechanism called NF-kappa-beta. And NF-kappa-beta is basically the sprinkler system for the uh, local immune system. So the virus is smoke, the receptor is the alarm. Once the alarm is triggered, then you have the uh, sprinkler system, which, which is the immune system that calms the fire down. If you don't trigger the alarm because it's cleaved by the protease, the alarm never goes off and the sprinklers never turn on and the fire keeps going. The protease stops the cell surface receptor. That's the first thing that happens in the body. So the immune system, the innate immune system gets turned off. Once the innate immune system gets turned off, the virus is able to replicate at a much, much faster rate. And that's why you see very high viral loads very early in the infection. And then after you have very high viral loads, at some point, it triggers a broader immune response. And then the immune system starts to come down, hopefully starts to bring viral load down. But by the time that happens, you have a lot of virus. And so that's basically what happens in COVID. So you have both the virus that the protease is helping, as well as down-regulation of the immune system that the, that the protease is, is doing. Right. So let's just break this down for people. SARS-CoV-2 has a protease, which is basically an enzyme that breaks down proteins and peptides, etc. But it has a special one in this virus that goes out and turns off our immune system. Correct. I really like that sort of smoke alarm sprinkler system analogy because I can now understand why we want to have a protease inhibitor. Yeah, and why you want it early, right? Why you want it as early as possible. Because if the fire is already raging, sprinklers don't work as well. Isn't part of the problem with COVID that we have an overreaction in our immune system, the cytokine storm, which actually kills people? Yes, once the alarm gets tripped, then the whole building sprinkler system may turn on and you may get way too much water. And then you get an overreaction of the immune system. That's what happens in severe cases. 
and cases okay. that, that lead to cytokine storms. That's not everybody. So in, in acute COVID, what really killed people was their immune system overreacting, right? Correct. You know, the autoimmune the antibodies basically drowned people and, you know, their lungs, and that's how they died. Yep. You're saying that SARS also has a protease which turns off the immune system, which is kind of opposite to what we think about when we think about this disease, right? Because we think about an yes. overreaction. So you're talking about something completely opposite, which could then be something specific to long COVID. Yes and no. I, I would say the reason there's an overreaction is because there was initially an underreaction. You have an underreaction and then your body wakes up to the fact and it overreacts. And this is where you get this concept of T cells going too far, becoming dysfunctional, too much in one direction, not reacting enough initially, and then overreacting. This is a compensation. Right. Overcompensating. Exactly. So it tips in the wrong direction. So you have to look at it more like a balance, like a yin and a yang, and the immune system has to stay in balance. And if it doesn't respond initially, it can over-respond afterwards. But everyone's immune system is different. So if you're immune compromised, you don't really get a response at all, which that also is bad. So just so I understand this, three-cell approaches that cleaves off our innate immune response it's not something that continues because then our system can wake up. Well, it, it can. So in my mind, when you say cleave, I, it means like actually cut off and discard. And so then it's not there anymore. But the, well, you have to look at everything like a ratio. It cleaves, but, you know, the body tries to turn it back on. So it can cleave for a period and then the body can try and right. compensate against it. And then the question is how efficient everyone is. And that's where the variability of response is. Are there any other diseases that do that? Yeah. SARS-1, MERS. I mean, this is very well known in viruses. HIV? Yep. HIV. That's why protease inhibitors are the main drugs for HIV. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You're sort of dealing with two different things here. You have worked a lot in the acute COVID and developing Tolivir. Is that right? For acute COVID. And now you have Tolivid for acute and long COVID. Can you sort of talk us through the and the differences between the two? Because I know that Tolivid is classified as a nutraceutical, Tolivir is a drug. Drug candidate, yes. Right. It's very much a regulatory interaction and in what we can say with a degree of authority. The raw materials, which is what it all comes down to, of course, the raw materials and the qualification of the raw materials that are botanical in nature, that started around 3CL protease inhibition. Um, and was focused on inhibiting the protease. Initially, we, we, you know, we didn't know anything about Nemo at the time, but initially just stopping the virus from being able to create copies of itself, right? That was the objective. So Dr. Rod's work, when the pandemic broke out in Israel, it just so happened she had a bunch of bottles in her garage of the raw material, of the 3CL protease inhibition raw material. And she had family that got sick and it dawned on her, maybe if I give this to them, they'll get better because she had it from years ago. And it did. And then another patient and another patient. Um, and so the, the concept of protease inhibition around this virus, that's where she started. And Dorit is a pretty famous scientist. Many, many people know her in scientific circles in Israel. She'd been working on cancer. She'd been working on metabolism. She'd been helping patients for a long time. So she's kind of has a status in the community 
such that if she says, hey, you should try this, people try it. As more and more stories came out of success using the raw materials, she obviously started to work on formulating, thinking about dosing. How do you put this into a commercial product that will have an impact? And she's got a background in creating drugs. Um, so she was able to get access to the right raw materials, start to manufacture somewhat larger quantities. So they did a small study and the patients who were on the raw materials of Tolovid, they, they did much better. They didn't die and they didn't end up on a respirator. They actually had some biomarkers that turned out to be beneficial people's CRP came down. That was a very early initial proof of concept that the raw materials looked like they could be having some benefit. Were the patients only taking your combination of botanicals or were they on other drugs? Uh, no, they were on, you know, whatever. So they were on all the, the standard drugs, the steroids and the, so the, it was just part of a drug regimen, but it was given to them in addition. Correct. Yeah not just a study on Tolovid as we know it now. In drug trials, it's almost impossible to, you can't, you can't do that. You can't withdraw. We want to make sure that people know it wasn't just a study on your botanical. It was given in addition to other pharmaceuticals. Absolutely. Um, so at that point, we had started to do a lot of work with her. The observational study was quite encouraging. So we became very interested. Dorit and her team, they were able to get a certificate of free sale from the US FDA to use the raw materials to be able to sell them because they had a lot of people who wanted to use it. So we got an authorization from the FDA and she had a close relationship with a manufacturer, American Health Formulations, who's our current manufacturer, to be able to produce it according to CGMP standards. Because she's a drug developer, she wanted to do it in a drug-like fashion with a, a drug type manufacturer so that ultimately it could scale. They got their first product on the market in August, of 2020, we got involved on the therapeutic side in Q4 of 2020. And then we initially launched at a botanical uh, food store here in New York called The Alchemist Kitchen, which is uh, very well known for a lot of natural type products because they're very high quality, potentially very potent, but still all natural. We wanted to work with them because at the time it wasn't clear what else you were going to have to use? Vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, you know, everybody was using everything. You know, we knew our product was highly bioavailable. So we wanted to work with other high quality products so that if there was a synergistic benefit, we would see it, a maximum benefit. Plus the customers at the Alchemist Kitchen, they have confidence in the recommendations from their herbalists. So we're not just throwing it out on the internet and saying this stuff works. The, they've got a community where people go in for different health conditions and they give them a lot more of their history and the people at the Alchemist Kitchen make recommendations on what they should take for their different conditions with herbal supplements. So that's why we started there. The American health manufacturer, you say it's a drug type. Did you guys want to create, a? they call them nutraceuticals? Are you a nutraceutical or are you botanical? It's a, it's a dietary supplement. It's a dietary supplement. Oh, it's not actually a nutraceutical. Well, a, a nutraceutical, I don't think, is actually a, a real word. <laughs> That's good because Noreen really doesn't like that word. <laughs> I don't like that word at all. Would it be classified as a therapeutic? No. The, the question of whether it will ultimately become a therapeutic is a regulatory question, not a question of what's in the bottle. For it to become a therapeutic, you have to go and get it approved by the FDA for a specific indication. 
So right now, we don't have it approved. There are additional talk studies that we're, we're going to have to do. There's efficacy studies we're going to have to do. We have to find the right dosing. And there's a lot of things that go into turning it into a drug. And so it's not a drug. It's not approved to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure. But it's a supplement on the market. People can take it. And as we learn more, there is the potential that it could become a drug one day. What levels of testing have you gone through to this point to put it out there on the market in terms of interactions, toxicities, safety? What do you have to adhere to to even begin selling it in the alchemist's kitchen? The standards in the U.S. are not that strict, but we went to kind of a higher standard. So we use the published literature in our uh, reports for toxicity, but all the talks associated with the raw materials are around impurities. And so it's really, that's where it comes back to the CGMP manufacturer. So we get certificate of authenticity and they actually do testing on each batch to ensure that it doesn't have a laundry list of things in it. You're looking at heavy metals and, and these kind of things. But then you don't have to test interactions. And I guess what I'm trying to establish is the, the side effects and the potential negative impacts, how much testing do you have to do on the potential flip side before you can bring it to market? Uh, none. I mean, there's there's none that, that's required at all. That's actually one of the reasons why we worked with the herbalist initially, because they were seeing patients and they had a very kind of close relationship with them and they knew what they were on. Learning from them what happened is what gave us a lot of confidence because nothing happened. We didn't really get this interfered with my statins or this interfered with my diabetes medicine or this interfered with this cancer. We didn't get any of that. And, and we would not know because we haven't done the formal studies yet. We're doing those for the for the Tolavir, which is very similar product, right? For the drug candidate that we're doing that, but we haven't done it for the Tolavit. Now, obviously the, the products are not identical, but some aspects of them are identical. Is it the same base material? They're cousins. It's the same parent plant, but then there's two subcategories, but they're almost identical. This is a Gromwell root. Well, there's Gromwell root, then there's uh, Arnebia, and then there's, it gets very complicated, but the, the genus of the plants are almost identical. Any side effects that you would have with one, you would have with the other. So the data that we're using on Tolavir is kind of helping us. On Tolavir is in, informing on Tolavir. Yeah. Why are you doing two? What is the difference between the Tolavir and the Tolavir if they are the same root and the same action? Well, they're not, they're not exactly the same. So in Tolavir, we also add an enhanced extract from the plant that is an anti-cytokine. Okay. And that's why we use it more in the hospital setting because you have typically a lot more cytokine storm activity in the hospital setting. That's why when we ended up creating the Tolavir, which was not initially the plan, but as we went through the process of doing a trial, we discovered a lot of things and we said, okay, we really should create a second product, which is the Tolavir. That's why we're doing it. So it, it addresses both the viral replication and the cytokine storm, which is why it, we think it's really unique in the hospital setting. And that's been through phase two clinical trials. Yeah, and we're getting ready for phase three now. So do you think at some point you may phase out Tolavid? Because I know it's extremely expensive to go through all that testing. It's really different. Tolavir, if it ultimately gets to market, is it's gonna it's a drug. It's gonna be priced like a drug, it'll be a lot more expensive, it's gonna be prescribed, etc. 
Tolavid is more of a supplement. And candidly, I mean, I wouldn't want to phase it out. I take it every day. You take Tolavid every day? Every day? Yeah, every day. Every day. For what? We don't make any drug claims for Tolavid, but to maintain low or hopefully no 3CL protease in my body. So if, if I come in contact with the protease, it more doesn't produce. That was the original intent. Tolavid was never intended to be used within the context of long COVID. We didn't even know about it. Is the point of that to stop you contracting COVID? Or what is the purpose? I can't say that. But what I can say is the objective <laughs> is, is to limit the amount of protease that you have. If you, if you don't have a lot of protease, obviously, you can make the extrapolation. That's a very good thing. But don't you only have this protease if you've got COVID? If you have a virus that has the protease in it. So there's a few of them. But yes, that's, that's the objective. That's what it went on the market for. It originally went on the market to limit or to flush out protease. So if, if you have it in your system and you can come in contact with something that produces a lot of protease, if you have the inhibitor there, hopefully you're, the base is a lot lower and Taking it your, as a body's immune, your, your body's immune system will not get turned off if you have it in your body. If your body's immune system doesn't get turned off, then your innate immune system can respond faster. And then you don't get to the point where you have high amounts that you have to come down from. So you're taking it prophylactically? Yeah. I you, don't, you don't have COVID, right? So I don't have COVID. So, okay. That's part of what we learned with the Alchemist Kitchen is some people want to take it every day to further support themselves, you know, and obviously this was at a time when there was no vaccines, right? Um, initially when we launched it. That was for the acute. Am yeah, I right? we weren't talking about yeah. long COVID back then, were we? Not very Nobody much Nobody anyway. was talking about it. No one was paying attention to it. Everyone was worried about the case counts. So that's the context. And then we learned a couple pills a day to help keep your amounts low. Just looking at what the other people are doing in the space with their protease inhibitors. We looked at the same kind of thing, you know, on our label, our new ones have both three pills, four times a day for five days, or one pill twice a day, or, you know, anything in between, obviously it's up to you. It's a supplement, not a drug. So these are just That's 12 pills a day, 12 pills a day. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't manage that. I mean, I forget to take one pill a day. So. I know. <laughs> Listen, you'd be surprised. If, if, if you have high 3CL protease in your body, you will not forget to take it. I guarantee. Especially if you start to feel better. You're not going to forget. The emergence of long COVID. I mean, at the time that you were speaking, I already had long COVID. But how, how did you then start to see that there was potential efficacy for the Tolivid in cases of long COVID? I'm not going to say that there's efficacy. I can't say that. But what I can say is, so this idea of viral persistence, right, is... Um, is that your sort of uh, understanding of long COVID? Everyone that we speak to coming at it from different specialities has their own version of, of what is driving it. Well, I, I, listen, I, it, it's obvious that the virus started it. Now the question is: Is the virus keeping it going, and is that what's driving it? And you know that that's that's the open question. But I don't think anybody can disagree that the virus started the problem. So our view is that yes, of course, you know, a huge percentage of long COVID 
is virus initiated. But once you start the sequelae, it goes off on its own. It can do all kinds of stuff. Um, and, and it can go in a variety of directions based upon the other viruses you had that your immune system was keeping in check that it can no longer keep in check because it's been downregulated as a result of the protease or other factors. Obviously, the super antigen is not good. It's a bad thing. If you had an autoimmune triggering event, it's quite possible that has triggered something that will keep going even when the virus goes away. We obviously know about the vascular damage. The longer that that persists, that impacts everything. So yes, we our, our belief is that you have viral reservoir. The viral reservoir is creating protease. That protease specifically goes out, and this is one of its main functions, it goes out in the endothelial cell system and damages NF-kappa-beta. That's, there was a nice publication in Nature Neuroscience that came out and it, did, it said it did so in the brain. And if it does it in the endothelial system in the brain, there's no reason to think that it wouldn't do the exact same thing in the endothelial system everywhere else. Well, that's the main route, right? That, that all these things take, the endothelial system. And it's the endothelial system's damage that is leading to the microclots. Possibly. Well, we don't know. See, this is the thing. Let's not make sweeping statements here. Well, <laughs> so, that's fair enough. But the, 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 the endothelial system ha- has been the cause of clots in the past. Yeah. Yeah. There's no other strong hypothesis about what it could be. So right now, today, that's our working hypothesis. You're right. Obviously, there could be other things impacting it. But in terms of what we've seen... Right now, there's not really much explaining other than damage to the endothelial walls that, that cleaves off and then you get microclots. You know, we don't know, obviously, that a 3-cell protease inhibitor is going to impact all of those things. But if you do have viral persistence and the evidence is pretty clear for some people, if you take Paxlovid, they feel better right away. I mean, they feel better almost immediately after taking it. They do, but they also feel worse when they stop taking it. Well, right, 100%. And so that's why for us, it's, you know, it's important to remember our mechanism. What are we doing? We're not touching the virus. The virus produces the protease. We're touching the derivative of the virus, which is the protease. So if we stop that and that has benefits, that's great. That doesn't teach us about what the virus is doing that teaches us about what the protease is doing. If you experience like we've seen and, and the people on Pactivit have seen, you know, the heart seems to get better. They seem to resolve some of the, some of the brain issues, a variety of things. People say, you know, fatigue is definitely one we hear, which for us, that just means the transfer of oxygen is probably a, a whole lot more efficient. That's why you have less fatigue because you're getting more oxygen because the transfer of oxygen is, is more efficient because the endothelial cells don't have the protease so they can work normally. So protease blocks the oxygen uptake in the endothelium. Exactly. Yes. That's a key component. That's what they call the microvascular damage. Isn't the Paxlovid just stopping the replication of the virus or it's dampening it down? No. Paxlovid is impacting the protease. The lack of protease is what's impacting the ability of the virus to replicate. So that's why I'm saying it's very important to know the mechanism. Uh, Molnupiravir works directly on the virus. It doesn't work on a derivative of the virus. Paxivid works on a derivative of the virus. In the same way that Tolovid works. Exactly the same way that Tolovid does. So 
the derivative of the virus, that does something. So if you stop the derivative, then our view is that you have less damage to the immune system. The less damage you have, the more the immune system can heal itself. And then the less the virus is replicating, if the immune system is healing itself, hopefully you're producing neutralizing antibodies and clearing antibodies to actually go and take the virus out. Now, that's an open question because we don't control that side of it. Typically, if the body's exposed to a virus, it mounts an immune response to the virus and it clears the virus. If you have too much virus, as in the case of SARS-2, we can't do that. But if you tip the scales for long enough, and, and that's really a big question, how much and how long, if you tip the scales in your direction for a long enough period of time, hopefully you can mount an immune response that that can then go and take out the virus. That's the ultimate objective. And that's when you talk about the rebound, like you're describing, that in our view is exactly what's happening. You're obviously reading a lot of what's going on in Twitter and how people with long COVID are are talking about Tolivid. And it's a lot of people. I mean, in this country, it's 1.7 million people who actually are confirmed as having long COVID. And in the US, it's more like five. You potentially have a big market there, but people are desperate for a cure. Anecdotally, listen, listening to people on Twitter or reading about their experience of Tolibid, once they stop, they have a rebound. Are you thinking about having this as something that people take continuously? Because it doesn't treat the problem, right? We're not treating the virus or we're not treating what's causing the issue. We're trying to inhibit. This is a nuanced answer to that. So I would say if the protease is what's damaging the vascular system and the protease is what's lowering the innate immune system, then in fact, getting rid of the protease is, is responsible for the symptomatic benefit, which for the patient is what they care about. They, you know, they care that they can go out, they care they can walk around, they, that's what they care about. So the question is, will it be maintained? And that I think is definitely gonna be variable because that is gonna depend on each individual patient's immune system's ability to come in and actually clear the virus once you've limited the further damage caused by the protease or the further damage caused by more virus. Because, you know, virus dies, more virus is produced. If you stop more virus from being produced, the question is, well, how long does it take for the viruses that's there to die? And that is what's variable because the immune response of each patient is variable. That's why I I think you're going to see huge variability in the response. The question is, how much time do you need to kind of not have that additional damage to bring the immune system along or to take monoclonal antibodies or whatever they're going to come out with that actually can clear the virus? And that's the second part. So I think functionally, yes. If you're a person, for example, that is immune compromised and you don't respond well to the vaccine, so you don't produce a lot of neutralizing antibodies, you don't have a robust immune system, you're not able to mount a response to clear the virus itself, then yeah, you're probably gonna have to be on protease inhibitors to dampen down the amount of virus that you have there for a long period of time. So what if the problem with long COVID is the reason that we all contracted long COVID is that we are all immunocompromised or there was already a fault with our immune system. That suggests to me that 
if you have long COVID, you are not ever going to be able to take Tolibid and then come off it and have a satisfactory result. Because it suggests to me, if we've got a problem with the immune system, each time we come off it, we're going to need to go back on it to to keep that uh, fighting that protease. I could tell you, at least from our perspective, that's not true because we know people that have taken it and gone off. Yeah, you have. You've got people who have got fully well without having to sort of dip in and out. The way I would look at it is if you have an intact immune system and you got COVID and COVID turned off your immune system, then if you turn it on, then your immune system can turn back on, right? If you, if you take the, the shackles off of your immune system and you allow your immune system to turn on, then that, that is possible. Again, it's going to be individually dependent. And what we're now finding is long COVID, I mean, there's obviously buckets, but I think the biggest bucket is how long you've had it. Because people that have not had it for as long seem to get better and stay better more than people who've had it for a long time who need to take a lot more maybe to, to clear. And then the immune system is not, it's not a light switch. So, you know, it takes time to activate. And there's, it's very complicated. There's many parts of it. And, you know, I, I'm not an immunologist. Well, this is why the super antigen part of SARS is very bad for everybody. That's very bad. That's very, very bad. Yes. But those people who do deal with immune compromised or autoimmune, which are really polar opposites. One is the immune system is not working enough. The other one is the immune system is, is working way too much. And in some aspects, you can have some aspect of the immune system not working and other aspects working too much. Well, they're actually the same person because the autoimmune community is given immune inhibitors in order to, to continue their lives, right? That's right. The autoimmune, but then the immune compromised who don't develop an immune response, they're given immune boosters. We don't know the answers, but we do know if you lower protease, you lower damage, the body has a better shot at finding its level. That's really what Tolovit's about. So we're, we've kind of positioned it more of like a cleanse at this point because it's a supplement. We obviously, we don't know what the right dosing is for everybody, but we do know to the extent that if you lower your protease, you can see people develop immune responses. We've, we've heard people, for example, that have had major GI issues, unable to have consistent bowel movements when they are on the toll of it, that helps them. Obviously, once that happens, then a huge part of the immune system is in the gut. So once the gut gets more normal, then other things start to become more normal. We look at it more as, okay, however you got here, you have a lot of protease. Protease is bad. When you lower the protease, good things happen. Is that going to work for everybody? No. You know, maybe 20 or 30% of people will see no improvement. Now, the question is, for those 20 or 30%, is the protease inhibition working, but you have something else? Maybe it's not COVID. Maybe it's some other virus that is responsible for what's happening, do you still need to keep the protease inhibition down and then add something on top? It's super early days in the research. That's not something we would know. What happens at this point in terms of studies, in terms of the real detail of what you need to then put on your product for people to know what's safe? This product's been on the market for a year and a half and we haven't had any safety complaints. The lecithin is made with soy. There are people who've had some allergic reactions to the soy. Then we obviously tell them not to take it. And we're, we're working on 
moving from soy lecithin to sunflower lecithin. We've read an anecdotal reports of liver issues as a result of Gromelry. That's not something that you've have reported. That's an interesting question. So the, the liver issues, we've not found that they're actually related to the product. We've found that they're related to having COVID or long COVID. It's not surprising to us that we've heard, oh, today it's my liver, tomorrow it's my bowels, the next day it's my brain, the next day it's this, and then four or five days later, it's not really anything. All of those things have been transient. No one has said, hey, I have a liver problem, my liver problem persisted, and now I have to go to the hospital for my liver problem. That's never happened. We've had people say, oh, this hurts, and then, oh, it went away. This is the difficult thing about it not being a drug. And we haven't done thousands of patients for clinical trials that are closely monitored. We don't have that information. But what we can say is everyone who's had any quote unquote liver problem, it's resolved. We've never had anyone that has had a persistent liver problem or a persistent problem of any kind. We recommend everyone, if you're concerned, you know, absolutely work with your physician, monitor yourself, wear your heart rate monitor, do all those things. But we haven't seen anyone who's come out and has had any adverse event that is persistent. To the product itself. It's perfectly reasonable for people to have concerns, but there's nothing that's happened that would suggest to us that there's a fundamental problem with the product. Are you confident in having a product that sounds that powerful, that it seems to have that strong an effect, go out into the market amongst that very, very vulnerable community that hasn't had that rigorous testing? Yeah, I, I think we are. Obviously, we want to get that data as we scale. So you do plan to do studies and trials, despite it not being a legal requirement? Oh, yeah, we're already doing that. Yeah, absolutely. We're a research company. We're, we're not uh, a, a supplement manufacturer that has 20 supplement products on the market. We got into this as a 3CL protease inhibitor with the specific objective of helping global problem that's going around now. We decided to go with the supplement because we used the botanical product and that would give us faster access to data. Which is what all long COVID people are crying out for, faster, faster stuff to come on the market. And the raw materials, they do have known immune support benefits outside of the protease. There are known anti-inflammatory components to the raw materials which have benefit. We know when we test the raw materials, the major variability is in fact a protease inhibitor. So you can't just go buy any old Gromwell root off the shelf and expect to get what you get with the way we qualify the material. So the, the assay that is used to release Paxlovid as a release criteria for protease inhibition, that assay is virtually identical to the assay that we use to release Tolovit because Dorit invented it. That's how we know the strength of the protease inhibitor. The other aspects are, is all about safety. We get the raw material and then we do the testing to ensure that it doesn't have any of these heavy metals and stuff. And then that's certified by our manufacturer as safe to go on the market. Now, that's not a requirement. So other people who are putting Gromwell root extract on the market, it's not manufactured at a CGMP facility. You do have actually more safety things in place than is even a, a requirement. Yes, because, you know, we know how people are going to use it and we know the types of people that are using it. And if we cause harm to those people, we're going to get kicked off the market pretty quick. 
We also wanted to talk to the person who developed and has done all the work on it for many, many years in looking at these particular combinations of VCL protease inhibitors. So we spoke to Dr. Dorit Arad, who's a drug designer. This is not new work to you, this 3CL protease inhibitor. Yeah, actually, I've been working on this 3CL protease inhibitor and on this 3CL protease and its mechanism for 28 years. Your initial work in protease inhibitors led you to figure out that this would help possibly with SARS-CoV-2? The story is that after I worked for many years on the HRV, on the 3C protease, the SARS epidemic started. And two weeks after it started, I had on my table the sequence of the 3C. I found out that the SARS also had the 3C protease, but not as a same structure, but with the same mechanism. So the protease was called 3CL, 3C-like protease, the protease of SARS. That was my uh, assumption, that uh, the same compounds that were active to the mechanism of the rhinovirus, of the 3C of the rhinovirus, will be active for the 3CL. And indeed, this was the situation. Now, when the COVID epidemic started, the percentage of similarity between SARS-1 and the SARS-CoV-2 in the 3CL is about 98%. And in the mechanism area, it's like 100%. It's the same mechanism. So obviously, similar compounds that did work on the SARS and on the rhinovirus should work on the COVID. So you're talking about Gromwell root, but you you take this Gromwell root uh, and synthesize it and refine it and produce your nutraceutical. It's not something people can't go up and dig up some Gromwell root and just eat it and hope to get better, <laughs> can they? First, most of the gourmet roots that are in the market do not have activity. We checked all of them. We checked many, many, many. So many do not have activity. In order for them to have activity, they have to be a, like a strong extract, a, a very uh, concentrated uh, extract. And also, we have to deal with the bioavailability for the compound to go into the system. What does that process entail? Is that something that you have to add to the concentrated Grumbel root? Or is that how you process the root? We process the root. The source is very important. Not all the sources that we take are uh, have active materials. Very few have. About uh, 10% of the producers that produce the gommel wood, they produce it in a way that uh, re- maintains the active material. When the pandemic first started, you were developing your protease inhibitor for use in acute COVID. Can you explain to us how the mechanism of it might potentially work in long COVID? What is your understanding of the, the mechanism in long COVID? 
what we think in long COVID that there are like holes or there are uh, regions in which the virus persists. Uh, we know that uh, it persists in some tissues in the lung or in the stomach or even in the brain. They found some uh, tissues in which the virus persists. It does not persist, um, grows very fast, but still it grows. And have you seen that? You know that that is, is the case? Yes, it's uh, actually not me. I didn't do the study in the lab, but there are so many uh, studies now that show that the virus persists. And we think that actually it works. Our supplement and our intended drug in development uh, would work to inhibit the 3C and inhibit the growth of the virus also in long COVID. In addition, the active compound that uh, exists in the supplement has anti-inflammatory, I mean proven anti-inflammatory properties. And uh, together, it has a beneficial effect on long COVID. So when you say the supplement and the drug that you have in development, is this the is this Tolivid and Tolivir? The drug has a, another combination of the ingredients. And the Tolivid, the, the supplement, has a slightly different combination. But it, it's, it's different. It's not the same. But are they essentially doing the same thing? Why the difference? The difference is that the, the drug is a stronger. It has a stronger concentration of the active material. Actually, much stronger concentration of the active material. But it requires much more rigorous um, testing to get approval for use. Of course. And we're going to do it. I mean, we're going to do a phase two, three clinical trial now on long COVID with a drug. But also in Tolovid, we found by surprise, I would say, an additional material, additional compound that has extremely beneficial properties. And this was a surprise. And that's in the Tolovid, in the supplement? In the Tolovid. What have you heard back from people using Tolovid? Amazing. It has a... I, I think it's amazing because I hear uh, from uh, patients that uh, people that I give them for uh, the Tolovid, and after one or two days, they become much better uh, for, for COVID and for long COVID too. What are the side effects of this on a long-term use? Because we know that antivirals or as such, or even this supplement, will not clear the virus completely. Your own immune system has to do that. So you would, in theory, have to take it long-term to keep everything at bay. And what are the potential side effects for someone trying to take this long-term? If uh, somebody takes it uh, v uh, like in very big amounts, like 12 a day or for a long time, he can get uh, diarrhea. Diarrhea is the main side effect. 
it doesn't have uh, effects on the liver. Uh, the Tolavida, I, I speak about the supplement. Uh, some people approach us and uh, said that uh, since it has uh, shikonin in large effects, it can affect the liver. But it doesn't because it does not have large quantities of uh, shikonin. What's the longest that you have known anyone to be taking Tolavid? I know that that might not necessarily mean in a clinical trial, but do you know of people who have been taking it for a prolonged period of time? I, 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 I'm taking it for one year, more than one year. And there any side effects for you? No, only good. Um, and ha- during that time of taking it, have you caught COVID? No, I never. Do you believe it has prophylactic qualities? Yes, but uh, for prophylactic, you have to take more than uh, like two pills. Two is not enough for prophylactic. You need to take six. So when I was, for example, when I was exposed to uh, somebody that had COVID, so immediately I started to take six pills a day and uh, and I didn't get COVID. But uh, I know of people that uh, have taken uh, two that got COVID after, I mean, when exposed, got COVID, but it was easy. I mean, it, it passed easy. So it's potentially sort of multiple strands to this. Prophylaxis from COVID, reduction of severity in of acute COVID and treatment of long COVID. Is that what you're saying? All three of those things could be addressed with Tolibet? Yeah, let's uh, let's repeat them. So first, uh, it uh, reduces the severity of the disease, even when taken in a later stage, not not exactly in the first day, but even at the later stage. Second, it uh, affects long COVID. And third, uh, when taken in larger amounts, it can, when exposed, it can actually uh, prevent the disease, the COVID. Are you at all worried about the buzz in the long COVID community about how this might cure them and with this amount of people waiting to see where this drug might go? First, it's not a drug. It's a supplement. It's a supplement. It doesn't treat the disease. It helps. It helps. It does not, we cannot say that it cures the disease. It's not a drug, a supplement. And the, the exact effect, I mean, the exact effect and the exact dosage, we will know when we'll do a clinical study on, a, on the drug. I do think it's interesting the way all of these conversations tie into each other. This brings us back to the last week's episode when we talked to Stephen Griffin. About the antivirals. About the antivirals. And so fascinating to have that knowledge that an antiviral does not cut the virus dead. And the other thing, I think this highlighted, there is a lot of medical knowledge that goes into the development of these things, even when they are supplements. So the idea of just going out and picking yourself some Gromwell root and thinking that you can do what someone has spent 28 years trying to develop. Yeah, we do need to stick to the science. (laughs) Yeah. Just personally speaking, though, because we spoke to Stephen Griffin, I don't know if I'm going to go down this route of trying to reduce viral persistence unless I know I have viral persistence in my body. 
I think it's highly likely that you and I have an autoimmune contingent. Yes. And so the way the antiviral works wouldn't necessarily be particularly good for our immune systems. At the end of the show, I wanted to uh, talk to our audience directly and just say that as we discussed at the top of the show, how Emily and I are, are kind of our own cheerleaders and friends and we just talk to each other when we're not feeling very well daily, I think it is, that we'd like to hear from you. Just email us an audio note and we'll put it on the show with any questions or how you're feeling or what you've tried or anything that you want to share. We'd love to hear from you. We know that people really want to hear from doctors and experts and what the latest research is. But we'd like to add another element to this podcast where we're here from you directly. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.